Hello and welcome to episode 30 of Paper Review, where I review the papers and big headlines over the week and place events and headlines in their true context in a weekly podcast. And the first subject this week is Brexit. This is in the Daily Mail. Macron marches into Brexit debate and backs plan for an alliance of moderates to stop Corbyn or Boris if we crash out of the EU. Emmanuel Macron is backing a controversial move by Tory Labour MPs to join forces to counter the risk of Brexit fueling a rise in UK extremism. French President has endorsed a bid by Theresa May's former No. 10 policy chief to forge a new cross-party coalition of MPs opposed to a no-deal Brexit. Tory MP George Freeman says the UK faces a Black Monday economic meltdown if, as an increasing number of politicians predict, it withdraws from the EU without an agreement in March. Mr Macron has sent a letter of support to a big tent political rally being hosted by Mr Freeman in Cambridge next month. Mr. Freeman, head of the Conservative Policy Forum, denies it is part of a plan to build a new centre party. He says the aim is to produce inspiring new ideas to ensure post-Brexit Britain is a success. But he linked it to a stark warning that a no-deal Brexit could lead to a repeat of the so-called Black Wednesday in 1992, when Britain crashed out of the EU's exchange rate mechanism. John Major's Tory government never recovered from the ensuing economic crisis and Labour won the next three general elections. Mr Freeman says he feels a Brexit Black Monday would do the same and result in Jeremy Corbyn leading a minority hard-left government. If it did, Mr Freeman says Tory MPs like him could form a coalition with moderate Labour MPs to keep Mr Corbyn out of number 10. Equally, if it resulted in a minority hard-right Tory government led by Boris Johnson or Jacob Rees-Mogg, moderate Conservative MPs could join forces with Labour MPs to keep them out of power too. Leading Tory and Labour figures to attend Mr Freeman's Big Ten event, which is being co-hosted by Baroness Sally Morgan, a former number 10 aide to Tony Blair. Harriet Harman, ex-Blairite Minister Liam Byrne and anti-Corbyn Labour MP Ian Austin will rub shoulders with Cabinet Ministers Michael Gove and Liz Truss. Scott's Conservative leader Ruth Davidson has pledged her support. Mr Macron came to power after breaking away from France's left-wing Socialist Party with his En Marche movement, En Marche meaning forward which crushed the hard-right Frank National. He has been called a French Tony Blair. Mr Freeman, a descendant of Liberal Prime Minister William Gladstone, said he was delighted to have Mr Macron's support, though some are bound to accuse the President of meddling in British politics. In an interview with the Mail on Sunday, the MP said, We must recast the language and vision of Brexit. It should be a noble end, not a divisive and triumphalist divorce. We will not be thanked by people, even those who voted for Brexit, who were told they were going to become richer if they become poorer. Unless we build a big tent in the centre for those alienated by hard-left Corbynism or hard-right Farageism, the Tories will end up as a TP party piling up votes in traditional heartlands but losing its backbone support in London from the professional classes, doctors, teachers, science and business. The MP who backed Remain in the EU referendum insisted he did not wish to reverse Brexit and denied his Black Monday forecast was part of Project Fear. Britain formally leaves the EU at 11pm UK time on Friday, March 29th. Well, at this point, the article goes on. The impact will be clearer when the markets open on Monday, April the 1st. Mr Freeman explained why a no-deal outcome would be a catastrophe for the nation and the Tories. If we get Brexit wrong and crash out without a proper transition agreement, we risk a Black Monday. The sight of a Conservative government pushed into a no-deal and losing control will look to a whole generation like the disastrous Black Wednesday in 1992 which we paid for with 15 years in opposition. We would be seen to have abandoned our core pillar of economic competence. He says, Mr. Freeman favours a Norway-style Brexit with the UK paying to stay in the European economic area, coupled to a five-year ban on immigrants claiming welfare in Britain. 
His main fear is that a no-deal Brexit could lead to Corbyn scraping into Downing Street without an overall majority. See, maybe it's me, but I'm getting just a little bit sick of hearing about what action should be taken by Theresa May on Brexit in relation to the Conservative Party. It's not about the Conservative Party, it's about the people and their democratic choice to leave a political union. If Theresa May or any other member of the Conservatives are thinking about what to do or say in regards to Brexit from the point of view of the Conservative Party, they're not representing the people because it's not about the Conservative Party, it's about the people's vote. The article goes on. He says, in that event, Blairite Labour MPs would be ready to abandon the Labour leader, but they would only join forces with the Conservatives if the Tories were a sensible one-nation-style party, not a narrow, isolationist, nationalist, UKIP-style party. Well, it was UKIP that were responsible, at least in part, for the referendum, which ended up with Brexit happening in the first place. Anyway, the quote goes on. We could reach across to moderate Blairites looking down the barrel of a Corbyn hard left minority government and say, come and join us in the coalition of prosperity, said Mr Freeman. The article goes on. He may do likewise to defy a minority hard right Tory government led by Johnson or rees If we end up with someone leading the Tory party shamelessly pandering to the Farage like UKIP wing, we will cease to have a majority in Parliament or be supported by mainstream voters. The article goes on. Challenged whether in such circumstances Mr Freeman would team up with Labour moderates to defy them, he does not dodge the question. He says it must work both ways. He dismisses the idea that talk of a coalition with Labour is treachery. Conservatives must think about governing through coalitions, which is quite likely. We're in coalition now with the DUP. Mr Freeman does not share Brexit to his contemporary David Cameron's coalition with the Liberal Democrats. Cameron won a Commons majority in 2015, he points out. Theresa May blew it in 2017. The nightmare scenario I fear and foresee is a divided Conservative Party putting its own ideological Brexit triumph ahead of economic competence and driving voters into the arms of Corbyn. Instead of reaching out to Blairites in exile, we lurch to the right and justify the extremism of Corbyn. That is why we must create a space in the middle. Well, as I said just now, why should what's best for a political party have anything to do with what happens with Brexit? The people are the most important aspect of Brexit, not what happens to a political party and what happens with the left, right and all of this stuff is irrelevant. It's what the people voted for that matters for Brexit, nothing else. And there's another section here, which is Macron's letter in English. And it says, the President of the Republic, MP George Freeman, I have received the correspondence by which you invite me to deliver a speech at the Big Tent Ideas Festival to be held on the 7th and 8th in Cambridge. Sensitive to your approach, I thank you very much. Like you, I am determined to take up the great challenges of the planet in order to build a more secure world, which guarantees more growth of justice and ecology. I didn't believe that for a second, but that's what he says. It goes on. Also, although the constraints in my schedule unfortunately do not allow me to respond favourably to your kind request, I would like to welcome your initiative and wish you all the best for the success in the new edition of this event. I am convinced that this forum will contribute fully to the reflection on the issues we are jointly facing. In renewing my thanks, I beg you to believe, sir, the assurance of my best feelings, Emmanuel Macron. Well, first of all, why do these leaders of other countries feel they have to get involved in Brexit? You see all these leaders making statements and meeting with Theresa May. And this is a point, this is an important point, and it's a point I made in the first episode. The reason all these leaders of Europe and America are wading in on Brexit and meeting with Theresa May is because they're representatives of the same elite network that controls all of them. 
They're all working towards the same agenda, and that's why they all want the same thing with regards to Brexit. We have to, at some point, grasp the fact that whatever relationship the political leaders may appear to have in public, or whatever they say, their relationships are dictated by the fact that they are political leaders, and as such, they're working towards the same agenda. This cover of special relationships or relationship between this political leader and that political leader is just cover. That's all it is. It's nothing more. The agenda is what matters, not some apparent relationship. That's why you've got Merkel, the leader of Germany, allowing migrant after migrant after migrant into Germany and Macron, who is the same, has the same perspective on the issue. And in this country, we have endless migrants coming in because the leaders of those countries are all working towards the same agenda. And the European Union, of course, is all about free movement. That's why a lot of people in Britain voted to leave. The reason Merkel and Macron and the European Union want the same thing in regards to migration is because they're both working, is because they're all working toward the same agenda. Brexit was a response. Brexit was a response among those who voted for this reason against the political class. People had had enough of being dictated to and patronised by this political class. This is what has become known as populism. This idea that the political class knows best and the population just has to follow them because we don't know. They have to make the decisions because we can't. Brexit was making a statement that at least from some of the people that voted, the people do have the intelligence and the motivation to actually look at the situation and make their own decision. This whole debate about a no-deal Brexit is window dressing. It's obfuscation for the real deal, which is getting the right deal for the political class and for the EU. That's what it's about. They don't want Britain to get the right deal. Do we really think Macron, Trump and Merkel want the best for Britain? They couldn't care less. They don't even represent their own countries, never mind Britain. They represent this elite which wants a constant process of bringing power to a central point in Europe, in Brussels, and dictating to European countries now, but designed to be mega-regions, mega-cities later on. Smart cities. Now we're into the transhuman agenda, which I go into considerably in episode 11. This is the connection between the two. This is another reason why the EU is so important to this elite. The idea is power is brought into the hands of an unelected tiny few in Europe who represent this elite and dictating to Europe the orders of an unelected world government with the same structure as the European Union. They want unions for different parts of the world, as I've said before. This is the elite in the capital in the Hunger Games movie. See episode 4 for more on that. This is the elite in the capital in the Hunger Games movie. See episode 4 for more on that. This elite in the capital dictating to the regions, the mega-regions, with people barred from entering other sectors without permission. I've said before that there's a lot in movies and television, especially the real big movies, that are placing what's planned in the movies so people don't resist it. It goes into the subconscious mind and eventually it filters through to the conscious mind. And as someone's perception, it's done so people don't resist it as much when it happens. Preemptive programming, it's called. 
in equilibrium. They have the same theme of sectors as they did in Viva Vendetta. So all this business about the right deal is not about what's best for Britain, it's about what's best for the European Union, which is another way of saying what's best for the elite and their agenda. Also, it's about making Brexit as difficult and as complicated as possible so that people in other countries looking on who want to leave the European Union and govern themselves are intimidated into not making that happen and I've said before that the consequences that will ensue and things that have already happened as a result of Brexit some of it will be manipulated not least economically to get people to think twice about Brexit and to give a warning to people in other countries looking on but we need to take the risk and jump because if we don't and people in other countries don't then it's going to be far far worse than any exit from the European Union could ever be. The next story today which is about Monsanto and chemicals in food. This is in The Guardian. Weed killer found in wide range of breakfast foods aimed at children. Significant levels of the weed killing chemical glyphosate have been found in an array of popular breakfast cereals, oats and snack bars marketed to US children a new study has found. Tests reveal glyphosate, the active ingredient in the popular weed killer brand Aranda, present in all but two of the 45 out-derived products that were sampled by the Environmental Working Group of Public Health Organization. Nearly three in four of the products exceeded what the EWG class is safe for children to consume. Products with some of the highest levels of glyphosate include granola, oats and snack bars made by leading industry names Quaker, Kellogg's and General Mills, which makes Cheerios. Just a point on official safety levels. Often, not in every case necessarily, but often, safety levels don't mean safe. They mean a level officially at which a corporation can get away with something unsafe and without it causing too much of a problem to the point where it's obvious. That's often what official safety levels mean. Anyway, the article goes on. One sample of Quaker old-fashioned oats measured at more than one part per million of glyphosate. This is still within safe levels deemed by the Environmental Protection Agency, although it is currently working on an updated assessment. The EWG said the federal limits are outdated and that most of the products it tested exceed a more stringent definition of safe glyphosate levels. I grew up eating Cheerios and Quaker oats long before they were tainted with glyphosate, said EWG's president Ken Cook. No one wants to eat a weed killer for breakfast and no one should have to do so. Cook said the EWG will urge the EPA, the Environmental Protection Agency in America, to limit the use of glyphosate on food crops, but said companies should step up because of the lawless nature of the regulator under the Trump administration. Well, it's not lawless because of Donald Trump. Ultimately, it's lawless because there's a depopulation agenda, as I've talked about many times before. And one of the most obvious ways to play that out is through food and drink. The article goes on. It is very troubling that cereals children like to eat contain glyphosate, said Alexis Temkin, an EWG toxicologist and author of the report. Parents shouldn't worry about whether feeding their children healthy oat foods would also expose them to a chemical link to cancer. The government must take steps to protect our most vulnerable populations. 
The findings follow a landmark decision in the San Francisco court last week to order that Monsanto pay $289 million in damages to Dwayne Johnson, a 46-year-old former groundskeeper. A jury deemed that Monsanto's Roundup weed killer caused Johnson's cancer and that it had failed to warn him about the health risks of exposure. Monsanto, which said it would appeal against the verdict, has said glyphosate has been used safely for decades. In 2015, the EPA said that glyphosate has a low toxicity for people but could cause problems for some pets if they consume the chemical. So it could cause problems for pets, but it's okay for humans to eat it. The article goes on. However, the World Health Organization has called glyphosate a probable carcinogen. There's no probable about it. The reason they say probable, and the reason we hear often this or that may cause health problems, is because they know that people want to hear that there's no problem. So if they say probable, they know people are going to latch on to that and think that means... Ah, well, it might be okay then. That's why they say it. It is a carcinogen. Author, the article goes on. Authorities in California list as a chemical known to the state to cause cancer. In April, internal emails obtained from the Food and Drug Administration showed that scientists have found glyphosate on a wide range of commonly consumed food to the point that they were finding it difficult to identify food without the chemical on it. The FDA has yet to release any official results from this process. There was no indication that the claims related to products sold outside the US. US farmers spray about 200 million pounds of Roundup each year on their crops, including corn, soybeans, wheat and oats. It can also be used on produce such as spinach and almonds. A General Mills spokeswoman said, Our products are safe and without question they meet regulatory safety levels. The EPA has researched this issue and has set rules that we follow, as do farmers who grow crops, including wheat and oats. A Kellogg spokesman said, Our food is safe. Providing safe, high-quality foods is one of the ways we earn the trust of millions of people around the world. The EPA sets strict standards for safe levels of these agricultural residues and the ingredients we purchase from suppliers for our foods fall under these limits. The article goes on. Quaker Oats continues to proudly stand by the safety and quality of our Quaker products, as spokesman said. But Cook said that General Mills and Quaker Oats are relying on outdated safety standards. Our view is that the government standards set by the Environmental Protection Agency pose real health risks to Americans, particularly children who are more sensitive to the effects of toxic chemicals than adults, he said. And there's another part at the bottom here which says, This article was amended on the 16th to the 17th of August because an earlier version said, One sample of Quaker or fashioned oats measured at more than 1,000 parts per billion of glyphosate. The Environmental Protection Agency has a range of safe levels for glyphosate on crops such as corn, soybeans, grains and some fruits spanning 0.1 to 310 parts per million. This has been corrected to make clear the 1,000 parts per billion is within the EPA range. Well, I talk about Monsanto in episode 20. Monsanto are nothing more than a mega corporation working to introduce the elite's agenda in the area of food and genetic manipulation. Not just of food, but also of humans. And I explain what I mean by that in episode 20 and 24. Corporations, especially the mega-corporations, are simply vehicles to introduce the elite's agenda in multiple countries in their particular area of operation. So Monsanto, for example, introduces the agenda in the area of food and genetic manipulation, as I just said. Coca-Cola in the area of beverages with additives like aspartame and its drinks, which are excitotoxins and neurotoxins, which affect the brain's ability to think sharply and also affect behaviour. And kids develop behavioural problems because of these additives, chemical effect on the brain. Kids who consume this shite, who start acting out and develop these behavioural problems, then get taken to a child psychologist in many cases, who prescribe them drugs like Ritalin, 
which can actually make them worse. You've got energy companies pushing smart meters, which are part of the smart grid I talk about in episode 11. So these mega corporations are there to be vehicles to introduce the elite's agenda. This is one of the reasons the agenda is to get rid of business of all sizes, along with other reasons, because they want to get rid of competition. People talk about capitalism, but we don't have capitalism, we have cartelism. We have a food cartel, a biotech cartel, which is the branch of science relating to genetics, biology and technology. We have a medical cartel, etc. And these cartels are owned by the elite. Corporations are planned to run everything, and through trade deals like TTIP, have the option to take governments to court to overturn laws they feel could affect profits, even if those laws exist for people's well-being. We're seeing the next stage of this now, as I talk about in episode 20, of mergers of mega corporations like Monsanto David Bayer in a story I feature in episode 20. The idea is to move from mega corporations to giant corporations and in terms of monopoly, which is the idea, look at Amazon. I mean, what doesn't Amazon sell now? And of course, that's an online corporation, which is another part of this. This story is obviously another expression of the depopulation agenda being played out through various avenues in society and which fundamentally connects again into the smart city agenda 21 world just as with the first story today. The next story today which is about Zionism again, Zionism once again, this is in the independent. Former Labour MP Jim Sheridan suspended following remarks about Jewish community. Labour has suspended councillor and former MP Jim Sheridan over comments he made about the party's anti-Semitism around. Mr Sheridan, MP for Paisley and Renfrewshire North until 2015, said he had lost respect and empathy for the Jewish community over the ongoing anti-Semitism around the Labour Party. For almost all my adult life I have had the utmost respect and empathy for the Jewish community and their historic suffering, he wrote on his Facebook page in a post which has since been removed. No longer, due to what they and their Blairite plotters are doing to my party and the long-suffering people of Britain who need a radical Labour government. Mr Sheridan, now a local councillor in Renfrewshire, has been suspended by Scottish Labour over the post, according to the BBC. The party spokesman said the Labour Party takes all complaints of anti-Semitism extremely seriously and we are committed to challenging against it in all its forms. All complaints about anti-Semitism are fully investigated in line with our rules and procedures and any appropriate disciplinary action is taken. Labour MP Ian Austin called Mr Sheridan's remarks utterly disgusting. The ongoing round for anti-Semitism in the Labour Party showed no sign of easing up this weekend after an Israeli athlete who survived the massacre at the 1972 Munich Olympics called on Jeremy Corbyn to quit as Labour leader. Professor Shaw Ladani, a Holocaust survivor who competed at the Munich Games as a race walker, condemned his visit to a Palestinian cemetery in Tunisia in 2014. Mr Ladani said he had no doubt Corbyn was an anti-Semite. He knows at present he cannot fully express himself totally openly because he might lose some of his voters, he told the Daily Telegraph. I don't know him personally, but from what I have read and heard, I have no doubt that he is an anti-Semite. He should disappear from the political scene and I hope that it will happen. The article goes on. The comments followed the backlash experienced by Dame Margaret Hodge after the MP likened the recent Labour Party disciplinary investigation into her conduct to the persecution faced by Jews in Nazi Germany, saying she felt as if they were coming for me. Miss Hodge said the inquiry left her thinking what did it feel like to be a Jew in Germany in the 30s. Her comments provoked an angry response from some Labour activists and supporters who criticised what they claimed was an overreaction. 
Mr. Corbyn has faced fierce criticism over his appearance at a Palestinian cemetery in Tunis in 2014. A spokesman for the Labour leader was yesterday forced once again to explain the visit. Jeremy Corbyn visited the Palestine National Cemetery in Tunisia to support Palestinian rights and honour the victims of the illegal 1985 airstrike, many of whom were civilians on the Palestine Liberation Organization's headquarters, an attack condemned by the UN, said the spokesman. Jeremy did not honour those alleged to have been linked to the Black September Organisation or the 1972 Munich killings. He, of course, condemns that terrible attack as he does the 1985 bombing. And there's another article here that follows on from that. This is an opinion piece. This is in The Independent. Accepting a full IHRA definition is not the answer to Labour's anti-Semitism crisis. Here's what the party should do next. Last week, Tim Roach of the GMB and Dave Prentice of Unison wrote articles urging Labour to adopt the full IHRA definition of anti-Semitism in all of its examples. In both their articles, the focus is on creating unity in the party and rebuilding trust in the Jewish community. These are both vital non-negotiable aims, but I cannot agree with their proposed course of action. Trust and confidence in Labour has been hit by recent events. The sheer strength of opinion among the 68 rabbis who wrote to Labour recently indicates that this is something incredibly widespread. Speaking to Jewish comrades, it is clear that a real sense of alarm has descended in many parts of the community. It is imperative that we don't write off this as nothing but the inevitable result of pro-Israel sentiment. We must take it seriously and we must try to rebuild trust. However, adopting all the IHRA examples is not a sustainable way to do it. In episode 28, I talk about the IHRA definition. The article goes on. In the very short term, and it's probably true that however forced such a move may appear, conceding to the biggest single demand of Jewish community leaders would act as a totemic signal and bring with it some goodwill. But we need to look beyond that. Whether we adopt the full definition or not, intense disagreement on Israel and on Zionism will continue to exist at all levels of the party. Any proposal that does not recognise that fact will not be compatible with the need to detoxify spaces infused with the bitter atmosphere that make Jewish Labour Party members feel unsafe in the first place. Adopting a formal position that carries with it well-documented ambiguity over key questions of free speech on Israel will only raise tensions further, create uproar and mayhem in many sections of the party and provide a never-ending supply of rounds and media stories that will only erode the trust of the Jewish community further. It will immediately start to undermine its own gains. I'll try to illustrate what I mean. The biggest contention that my fellow critics of the IHRA examples have is with a particular one that focuses on calling the state of Israel a racist endeavour, which it is. It's a racist apartheid regime. Article goes on. IHRA's defenders like to say that it allows for criticism of the policies of Israel, but not of the endeavour of building the Israeli state per se, that is to say Zionism. But this is an impossible distinction to maintain in practice, allowing criticism of policies but not allowing the discussion of the ideologies or political movements that are behind those policies is nonsensical. It is like saying you are allowed to criticise privatisation because it is a policy but you aren't allowed to link that to neoliberalism as the ideology that upholds it. Well, it might say that you're allowed to criticise policies of Israel but that's only to a point, if at all. The article goes on. Under the IHRA, almost any discussion about Palestine is liable to descend instantly into rancor and recriminations on this basis, even more so than in the current Fibron atmosphere. However, the debate that led to GMB in unison adopting official policy to back the boycott, divestment and sanction of Israeli settlements have been judged under this set of criteria. Their members could well have unintentionally fallen afoul of some overly broad IHRA examples in the course of advocating for the right of return and support for BDS. 
Boycott, divestment and sanctions is a movement that was set up to boycott Israel in various forms, including not buying anything that came from Israel. And you can tell that by the barcode. The article goes on. We cannot contravene the right of Palestinians to freely articulate their oppression and deter human rights groups, intergovernmental agencies or activists from taking up their cause. Our rich history and tradition as a labour movement of standing shoulder to shoulder of Palestinians will be heavily penalised. This is a reflection of the fact that the IHRA definition was never intended to be used as a legalistic document. It was initially a very basic working tool for data collectors monitoring anti-Semitic hate crime in the EU. It was only in 2016 that the definition was reintroduced by the IHRA and since then formally adopted by some governmental agencies and bodies. Even Kenneth Stern, who helped author the IHRA definition, opposes its accession in other words, its place in concrete legal definition and framework for tackling anti-Semitism. Lawyers across the political spectrum, academics and institutions see no legal merit or status to the document. and the Labour Party, it would do nothing to help clear the backlog of cases which would only be confused further by such an unclear and imprecise set of examples. Adoption of the IHRA examples will not put the issue to bed. Then, desperate as we all are for an easy route out of our current malaise, there is no use looking for a shortcut and no avoiding the necessary delicate relationship between Labour's engagement with the Jewish community and our policies on Israel. But there is a different path. A number of policies Labour could adopt have already been floated, including more consultation and dialogue on fine-tuning the code of conduct and guidance, the compulsory rollout of bespoke training and political education, and speeding up and rationalising our disciplinary processes. Another suggestion is that the leadership contact admins of unofficial pro-Labour Facebook groups asking them to police anti-Semitism better or withdraw Jeremy's or the party's name from their page titles. Well, it's not about the Jewish community and how they feel about perceived anti-Semitism, alleged anti-Semitism, or that they've read that there's anti-Semitism and because they've read it they think there is. What it's about is exploiting the Jewish community and using anti-Semitism to stop legitimate questioning criticism of Israel. That's what it's about. So, strategies to better engage with the Jewish community and think about how you toe the line between offending the Jewish community and talking about anti-Semitism is irrelevant because the idea is to use the Jewish community and anti-Semitism to stop legitimate questioning and criticism of Israel. The article goes on. Racism is not a simple thing. We on the left rightly recognise the existence of subtle and conscious forms of racism and acknowledge that even the most well-intentioned can reproduce it. We need to aggressively apply that to anti-Semitism too and tell people to get in line. Well, it depends what they're saying, what they're actually saying. The article goes on. We need to rebuild trust and this will take time. It will need a cohesive strategy, a more concerted party-wide effort. Adopting the IHRA in full might bring a temporary halt to the negative headlines, but it will not help heal the wounds. Well, where it says here that this former Labour MP, Jim Sheridan, said on Facebook, For almost all my adult life, I have had the utmost respect and empathy for the Jewish community and their historic suffering. No longer due to what they and their Blairite plotters are doing to my party. They, although you may not know it, are in fact Zionist anti-hate groups.
at least they say they're anti-hate, who go around targeting and defaming anyone, asking legitimate questions about Israel or criticising the Israeli regime for its genocide of the Palestinians and its apartheid regime. I talk about Zionism in last week's episode and episode 10 and other episodes and I'll go on talking about it because these Zionist groups only have the power they have to defame and stop people having a platform to expose Israel because of ignorance on the part of those who hear or read that someone targeted by one of these groups is anti-Semitic. And also because only a relatively few people are saying it. If more people said it, you can't silence a large group of people. A very, very large group of people. These groups include the Campaign Against Anti-Semitism, the Friends of Israel, the Southern Poverty Law Center in America, and others. Benai Brick is another one, who constantly look for examples of questioning and criticism of Israel. That's what they were, in part, created to do. They're front organizations for revisionist Zionism. My question is, why? If Israel is doing nothing wrong, why should it matter what people say? Because the facts will speak for themselves. So why should it matter anyway? Why do they need to go to such lengths to silence criticism of Israel when there's nothing to criticize in the first place anyway? And that's a rhetorical question, by the way. But the answer for people who don't know is that Israel is a racist apartheid regime intent on destruction of Palestinian land and balkanization of Syria en route to its revisionist Zionist long-time goal of a greater Israel and through its revisionist Zionist network placing its agents in positions of power and dictating policy, not least foreign policy, of the West. The number of revisionist Zionists in positions of power compared with the number of Zionists just regular everyday Zionists in the general population is stunning. Only a tiny few Jewish people live in Britain and America in comparison and of course a significant number of them will not be revisionist Zionists if they're Zionists at all and there's also a great number of Jewish people who actually protest and create organizations to protest against Zionism. So when you look at the number of revisionist Zionist people in positions of power in those countries two of the most important countries in the world, no less, you see a massive disparity. And it's those Zionists, revisionist Zionists, who end up in positions of power and who were there to carry out the will of Israel through revisionist Zionism and its policy. And this is not just now, this is going way back. Those are the people who end up in the positions of power. Not every single one, obviously not, but there they are in the positions of power. Revisionist Zionism ultimately controls political leaders, foreign policy of the West, the media, Hollywood, and the wider entertainment industry, giant corporations, Silicon Valley, etc., and thus move global society in line with the elite's agenda. The House of Rothschild are ultimately behind revisionist Zionism, and this is why revisionist Zionism is a vehicle to move society towards the elite's agenda, the Rothschild's agenda. And this is also why Israel can get away with its grotesque actions while any other country in the world would face condemnation, sanctions and other measures to keep them in line. And there would be no organisations created to target people challenging that country. Is there a Friends of America organisation? Or a Friends of Spain organisation? Or about a Friends of Sweden organisation? No, but there is a Friends of Israel. There is a campaign against anti-Semitism. There is a Southern Poverty Law Center. There is a benign breath. Because what they've done is equate anti-Semitism with criticism of Israel, where they're not the same thing. 
questioning and criticism of Israel is criticism of Israel's government's regime and policy and the actions of the Israeli army and its genocide of the Palestinian people, which is a very different thing from racism towards Jewish people. But if you can convince people they're the same thing, then you can justify attacking and silencing people who are saying things you don't want them to say in regards to Israel. And that's what they've done. It might be noted that these organisations, like the Campaign Against Anti-Semitism, and one of its main people, Stephen Silverman, get interviewed by the media, and they're allowed to spout their nonsense, and more or less no questions asked, and they're never asked the question, you're well-funded, you're attacking people for asking questions and criticising Israel's actions toward the Palestinians, you're trying to stop such people speaking in public, you're well coordinated. Who actually are you? Who funds you? Who coordinates you? Why do you really exist? Why are you going after the Labour Party? Why are you going after anyone questioning Israel? You appear to have come out of nowhere when it comes to campaign against anti-Semitism, at least. Who are you? They never ask those questions, either because they're too ignorant to even think to ask that question. A lot of the time that will be the case. But even if they do have at least some inkling to ask those questions, they know they'd better keep quiet because they've got a mortgage payment at the end of the month. And we're seeing this war on alternative information, as I explained with the previous story, ramping up and ramping up. And the only way to ensure that information continues to circulate is to prove its credibility and veracity uses many different platforms as i said just now but also most importantly to say what we're told we're not allowed to say because they don't want to frighten people into not saying it for any other reason than they know if people say it then so much is going to unravel and people will start to see the influence revisionist Zionism has and Israel has right across global society the idea that there's a network ultimately running human society towards a particular end and that end is the Rothschilds end because they're ultimately behind revisionist Zionism and a lot of dots start to connect and you start to understand that and a lot of dominoes can fall once you understand that. And they don't want people connecting those dots or knocking those dominoes down. So they have to stop criticism of Israel at source before it spreads too far. Not just criticism of Israel, not just that, that's part of it, but the detail and the information to show the influence Israel and revisionist Zionism has and the fact that it's those people to a very large extent that end up in positions of power to push this agenda forward and all the backup detail and information to show that so they have to stop that at source before it spreads too far but 
as I said just now, the more people that say it, the farther it will spread. And like I say, it's all down to us. Final story today, which is about social media and censorship. This is in the Daily Mail. Web giants ordered to delete extremist material within an hour or face fines under Brussels plans. Web giants will have to delete extremist content on their platforms within an hour or face being fined under new plans by the European Commission. It is the first time the Commission has shown it will get tough on the likes of Facebook, Twitter and YouTube rather than relying on self-regulation alone. Under the new rules, the sites would have an hour to take down things such as videos uploaded by members of Islamic State or posts inciting violence by extremist groups. It's not designed to end there though. That's just the foot in the door. Once you've got the foot in the door, then you expand it out into anything challenging the official narrative. The article goes on. If they are not removed within the time period, companies will be fined. The proposals will be set out in draft regulation due to be published next month according to the Financial Times. Julian King, the EU's Commissioner for Security, told the newspaper that Brussels had not seen enough progress when it came to the sites clamping down on terror-related material. He vowed to take stronger action in order to better protect our citizens. Under the rules, which would have to be agreed by a majority of EU member states, the platforms would have an hour to remove the material, a senior official told the newspaper. The rules would apply to all websites, regardless of their size. Mr King told the FT, the difference in size and resources means platforms have different capabilities to act against terrorist content and their policies for doing so are not always transparent. All this leads to such content continuing to proliferate across the internet, reappearing once deleted and spreading from platform to platform. The article goes on. The proposals come as tech giants have said they are successfully fighting extremist materials on their platforms. Earlier this year, Facebook said it had made significant strides in finding and removing terror propaganda. In the first quarter of 2018, the site to caption against 1.9 million pieces of ISIS and Al-Qaeda content, about twice as much from the previous quarter. Google, meanwhile, said more than 90% of the terrorist material removed from YouTube was flagged automatically. Half of those videos had fewer than 10 views. British politicians have said they will introduce laws to regulate tech giants with a white paper currently being prepared. It is unclear what the legislation might entail, but former Culture Secretary Matt Hancock suggested measures such as social media sites being forced to introduce tough age verification checks. In Germany, social media companies must remove obviously illegal posts within 24 hours or face fines of more than £44 million. Well, as I've said before, you've got the government saying they're going to clamp down on extremist content through social media. And then you've got the social media giants saying, well, we don't really want to censor, but we've got to do it. So this circus that we see, the social media giants were created to gain a monopoly by claiming to be about freedom of expression and your own space to say whatever you like. And then when the monopolies gained 2.5 billion last figure I saw estimated for Facebook users, then use that monopoly to censor material challenging the official narrative. That's the extremism they really want to clamp down on. They don't care about the hateful, inciting material. In fact, they want it because it gives them the excuse to censor the real target for them, which is anything challenging and exposing the official narrative. When you introduce the risk of fines, then that, that's obviously going to massively increase the censorship by social media giants because they don't want to be fined. And the whole idea is to massively increase the censorship. So that's what this... Is about. This is why control of the internet is part of the elite's agenda because it's the most wide-reaching, wide-ranging and easily accessible source of information in known human history. I've seen and heard it said over the last 10 years since I became aware of what's really going on. 
that the elite want to kill the internet and I've read claims of kill switch to end the internet but there's no way they're going to end the internet because it's so essential to their agenda. What they will do however and we're seeing it unfold is heavily censor the internet so only information that either does not challenge or supports the agenda and the official narrative is available on the internet. This is why, as I've said before, and I can't emphasize enough, the independent media and its consumers need to ensure that when they share information, they've got their facts right. It all comes down to credibility. If you're a consumer of the independent media and you share information from it, you have to be absolutely solid when it comes to content you share and facts and information that you state in terms of its veracity and its factual nature. If you're in any way unsure about the information, all it takes is for someone to try to verify it to prove you wrong. This means that from that moment on, they know they can't trust you to be credible. Never speaking or sharing written content unless you're certain of what you're saying and unless you can verify the statements you're making. Because that is the single greatest tool in the face of this war on alternative information and authorities' plans ramping up on the time to censor anything outside of the official narrative. The more there's a lack of credible, fact-checked, verified information in the independent media, that part of the independent media that actually wants to check facts and share information it can verify and knows is true, and people sharing that information, the more aces are handed to the authorities. But on the other hand, the more credible information the more chance there is of proving the reliability and credibility of alternative information to an unaware public, the vast majority of whom have no idea that such a thing exists. Research and veracity are everything. If people don't ensure the veracity of information they share or content they produce by being conscious and conscientious of the importance of credibility and being careful to only share and state information they can verify. There's nothing to stop the authorities censoring the alternative independent media in its entirety because that's where they want to go with it. We really are in the eye of the storm with this effort to censor anything, whether in person, in print or online, challenging the official narrative and to ensure the continuation of the circulation of information credibly, challenging the official narrative. One of the best ways to do that is to use as many different platforms and methods for circulating the information and also to ensure its veracity, because without the latter, frankly, there's no point in the independent media in the first place. So it's all down to us. But then again, it always has been. So that's it for this week. That's the news, that's the contesting connections, that's pay-per-view, more to come next week. Until then, goodbye.